Eric Lynch, Director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome to the Middle East Political Science Podcast. On this week's episode, we talk to John Noggle and Tami Fahori about their new book, Resisting Sectarianism, Queer Activism in Postwar Lebanon. We also talk to Reva Dingra of Harvard University about her new article on refugee aid coordination in Jordan. Finally, we talked to Dana Al-Kurd of, Rich, of the University of Richmond about recent Palestinian mobilization in East Jerusalem. Thanks for listening to our program. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and on this week's book segment, we're joined by John Nagel and Tamaris Fahori, uh, authors of a new book, Resisting Sectarianism, Queer Activism in Postwar Lebanon, just published by Zed Bloomberry. John, Tamaris, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting us. So this is a fascinating uh, book that really tells us a lot about uh, the emergence of LGBTQ activism in Lebanon, the challenges they face, and um, how that intersects with Western activism around similar issues. And um, I thought we could start if we could just maybe talk a little bit about the LGBTQ community and the circumstances it faces and, and kind of what you saw during your research um, that people really should understand about this community and, it, and, its, and its issues. Uh, John, would you like to uh, take the first stab at that? Yeah, thanks, Mark. It's a really, interest, a really interesting question. Um, yeah, I think there's a bit of a myth about the... LGBTQ population in Lebanon. And this is kind of perpetrated by Western media. You kind of portray kind of Lebanon as this place of sexual licentiousness and kind of freedom. And, you know, reports by the New York Times and CNN have spoken about, you know, this very sort of vibrant gay scene in Beirut. And that's kind of based on a couple of things, you know, like gay bars in Beirut or kind of nightclubs. And from that, we kind of extrapolate that, you know, Beirut is this kind of place which is amazingly kind of free and kind of liberal for uh, kind of gay people. But, you know, it's a couple of things which we need to kind of take into account here is that these bars and nightclubs have always been very kind of privileged kind of spaces. You know, it's mostly for kind of middle class kind of people or kind of tourists. Nightclubs have often kind of charged kind of fees of kind of $50 just for kind of people to get into these clubs. So they're very kind of exclusivist and don't actually necessarily kind of represent the real kind of experience of many LGBTQ people in Lebanon. And it's really important to kind of stress here that um, same-sex relationships are criminalized in Lebanon under law 534. So LGBTQ people can be prosecuted. The state security forces can torture LGBTQ people accused of engaging in same-sex relationships. And they can actually use confessions, um, you know, wrought through kind of torture against LGBTQ people as a way to kind of persecute them. And there's a whole kind of rafter of legislation and kind of laws, such as kind of masquerade and morality and so on, which can be used to kind of penalize LGBTQ people. So, you know, we, we need to kind of take in this into account. So. On the one hand, there is this, you know, kind of privileged kind of space for LGBTQ people. But on the other hand, if you're not part of that kind of privileged, you know, kind of privileged kind of cohort, uh, the conditions for LGBTQ people is very much an experience of kind of harassment, persecution, and so on. So it's within this sort of framework where LGBTQ activism has emerged 
um, specifically um, through social movements around about kind of 2003 and 2004, who have emerged as kind of human rights movements, mobilizing to kind of challenge criminalization, uh, mobilizing to kind of challenge the conditions of kind of torture, um, harassment, and so on. And this kind of activist movement, I suppose, kind of famously in terms of how it um, markets itself as the first sort of public LGBTQ movement in the Middle East. So this movement in itself has become um, kind of, you know, a kind of poster child for other kind of movements within the Middle East, but also for kind of international kind of funders who are looking to support and um, encourage LGBTQ movements across the region. So, I mean, as I say, we need to take into account, you know, the fact that although the kind of Western media kind of focuses on these exceptional kind of spaces, such as kind of bars and nightclubs, it kind of ignores the real kind of story, which is one of continuing um, harassment, persecution by state forces, and in some experiences by, uh, uh, in, in some accounts, you know, kind of non-state forces as well, um, such as militia groups who have, um, you, you know, arrested, targeted, and beaten up LGBTQ people on the streets of Beirut and other places as well. Tamaris? Yeah, uh, so one thing we learned uh, when we wrote this book is that describing actually the conditions of LGBTQ people in Lebanon is no straightforward uh, issue or task. So activists we talked to cautioned against portraying their conditions or their plight through a monolithic lens. So people suffer from different grievances and have different also queer projects or imaginaries. So for instance, how does it feel to be LGBTQ and from the working class? Or how does it feel to be LGBTQ and to have insecure work and to, to have invisibilized labor? And also, how does it feel to belong to the more mainstream LGBTQ circles in Lebanon? So in the book, we try to portray the plurality of LGBTQ voices, narratives, and conditions. Yet, if I may add one final point, is that in line with what John said, actually, there are two points uh, that we try to make in the book and that perhaps capture the complex circumstances under which the LGBTQ community in Lebanon lives. So first, we ascribe a lot of importance to the sectarian logic of governance and its political economy and how it places them particularly at a disadvantage, not only in terms of legal rights, but also in terms of access to resources, welfare, housing, healthcare, and education. And as John has just said, so in the last decades, international media outlets have branded Beirut as a liberal and emancipated city where people like LGBTQ communities can fully live their intimate lives. So we try really to dispel those claims and to debunk this myth. And we show that the sectarian logic of governance produces, you know, specific gendered experiences uh, for them and has many implications on their, you know, dignified living, their ambitions, also their access to jobs, public offices and uh, policy spheres. Um, the last thing I wanted to say is that another myth we try to shatter in, in this book is that it's, it's, so easy to say that 
you know, LGBTQ people in Lebanon can mobilize because of its so-called open, more open political system. However, we show in the book that Lebanon's sectarian system of politics presents massive challenges for LGBTQ individuals who wish to become political actors or protagonists in their own right. And we survey the various protest episodes that have happened in Lebanon, and we show the various dilemmas that they have been confronted uh, to. For instance, you know, whenever there is a revolutionary uprising, officials portray queer activists as destabilizing agents, traitors, or pro-Western puppets. So this is the kind of predicament that they face on a daily basis. John, you mentioned um, Article uh, 534, and maybe you could say something about the uh, difficulty of enacting legal change in Lebanon. Uh, you mentioned, uh, Tamaris, uh, the, the role of militias and sectarianism, but let's connect those two um, in terms of uh, kind of the legal and, and the social. John, would you like to go first? Yeah, so um, Law 534 is... Um, a piece of legislation which is part of a penal code in Lebanon. It goes back to kind of the French administration who colonized Lebanon in the 20th century. So Law 534 uh, criminalizes same-sex relationships. And it was a question I often, you know, put to kind of activists, what would you do in order to get rid of this? And, you know, activists were very kind of divided about it. You know, there's one kind of strand of activists who think, well, we need to end criminalization. And my question was, well, how do you do that? And can you do this through a kind of power sharing system in Lebanon, which only privileges the inclusion of the main sectarian groups? And it's impossible for kind of LGBTQ activists to kind of work within the system. You know, there's no institutional openings at all. They can't link themselves up with political parties because all of the main political parties are homophobic. Um, and even if they did link up with a political party in Lebanon to try to decriminalize, you, you, you know, the kind of structure of kind of power sharing is so Byzantine, but, you know, it's completely impossible to kind of do this. So, you know, the idea of kind of decriminalization, I think has been put to bed by most activists. So I, I think another kind of cohort of activists have looked at the idea of trying to uh, make five free inoperable in terms of how it works within the legal system. So basically what happens in Lebanon is if somebody is charged under 534, they're taken to court and of course, you know, um, you know, evidence is used against them, whether it's kind of evidence which has been used for kind of torture or whatever. And then, you know, the kind of sentence either to, you know, prison for a year or they could be fined or whatever, or we have to go through some sort of conversion therapy. But what kind of activists have kind of realized is well, how can you actually prosecute somebody on the basis of sexual relationships against the laws of nature? You know, nature doesn't have any basis in law. So activists have been working very closely with a number of um, legal professionals, including kind of high court judges. So in other words, what happens here is once these prosecutions of 534 kind of reach for kind of courts, um, a number of judges have actually overturned these prosecutions by saying, well, you can't prosecute somebody on the basis of nature, it doesn't have any sort of legalistic sort of meaning. And, you know, there's been a number of kind of court cases in which high court judges have done exactly this. I think there's eight or nine, including one military kind of court quite recently. And, you know, 
what we're kind of seeing here is although kind of 534 is still in practice, it's still on the books, it's very rare these days that um, LGBTQ people are being prosecuted under the base of kind of basis of 534. But you know, the state and security forces are very kind of crafty. They get kind of LGBTQ people in other ways, you know, they can use laws about morality, masquerade, masquerading identities. They can actually, you know, put LGBTQ people in prison on remand and not tell them why they're in there. You know, and, and I've had kind of cases um, put forward to me by LGBTQ activists, human rights advocates, and so on, about, you know, people who've been in jail for a year to kind of two years and we don't have a clue why they're in jail, you know. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, it's a very sort of, you know, obviously kind of very kind of complex system. Although the grounds for 534 are being winnowed all of the time and narrowed down, at the same time, the state and its security apparatus is getting around this, you know, looking to find other ways in which they can close down the space for LGBTQ people. And another way in which we've done this is by closing down events such as Beirut Pride, closing down kind of workshops organized by LGBTQ activists. In, in one quite infamous um, example about two or three years ago, General Security in Lebanon, which is responsible for kind of monitoring national security, um, broke into an LGBTQ activist workshop which also had a number of academics uh, shut it down, arrested some people and actually deported um, an audible academic. So, you know, it's, it's a cat and mouse game, basically what's going on at the moment. So Tammy, I wanted to pick up uh, a point that you made and one which runs very much through the book, um, which is kind of the differentiating the experience of being queer in Lebanon based on class and social position, and also between the different challenges faced by uh, gay men and lesbians, uh, and especially transgender, um, facing very different you know, encounters with society and with the state. Could you talk that through a little bit and explain um, the, the, the differentiations in the lived experience of, of LGBTQ people in Lebanon? Um, yeah, perhaps uh, it's important here to highlight how class distinctions create very different experiences uh, for LGBTQ in individuals. And so, in fact, class divisions are important, and I think that they are often underexplored in studies that focus on Lebanon's sectarian-led political system. So class cleavages, we found out, condition and structure LGBTQ experiences and struggles in various ways. So we may talk here about reinforcing cleavages. So if you are LGBTQ and from the working class, you, your class positionality produces a totally different experience that, than if you're wealthier or if you have access to privilege. And perhaps this, you know, uh, also I, I, I take this opportunity to, to circle back to uh, Article 534. Mm -hmm. So a case in point is this article who, according to the interviewees, to our interviewees, has been deployed to repress poorer or uh, disadvantaged LGBTQ individuals. So some activists insisted really on relaying the point that the article affects LGBTQ communities in different and complex ways. So it's mostly used against poorer and more vulnerable LGBTQ individuals who are in the shadows or who live on the edge of the edge 
while some are immune to it because of their capacity to access spheres of power and to make use of their networks. So here, perhaps, I would like to quote an activist who says that Article 534 is not necessarily making middle, uh, middle class LGBTQ people miserable. It's rather destitute people, refugees, and the lower class who suffer from Article 534. Uh, so I found it very interesting to look at the politicized and the sectarianized legal system as a rich terrain for studying you know, how class distinctions create different experiences and struggles for the queer communities in Lebanon. Uh, uh, so if I were to write another book on the theme, I would definitely focus on how the legal system intersects with different LGBTQ class positionalities and generates and or in a way shapes their vulnerabilities and their engagement with Lebanon's, you know, uh, a daily, uh, 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 daily in a way routine of living, wrestling with uh, with administrations, bureaucracies, so on and so forth. Uh, Tammy, one of the um, uh, really distinctive features of this book is the way that you connect uh, the LBGTQ struggles with the sectarian system. And, um, and could you say a little bit more about uh, the, the organic and intimate connection there between uh, the sectarian system and the issues that you were studying? Uh, sure. So that's a fascinating set, uh, question. Actually, our heart, uh, our 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 book touches at is at the core of this debate on the nexus between you know LGBTQ mobilization and sectarianism. And so, what we try to argue is that uh, sectarianism challenges in various ways queer mobilizations in Lebanon. At the same time, the queer community, you know, positions itself as a powerful uh, uh, force that shows the limitations of sectarianism. Um, something that is uh, really at the heart of our argumentation is that the sectarian system thrives on anti-LGBTQ popular attitudes in Lebanon in many explicit and implicit ways, because this um, political economy of sectarianism reproduces itself through a geopolitical and economic infrastructure of control. And it necessitates in a way that people conform or comply with a certain way of thinking and acting. If they want to be part of certain hegemonic circles, if they want to access institutions, spheres of power, political party apparatuses or electoral processes. Uh, so, and in this case, this presents a lot of challenges for LGBTQ activists. So let me give you, for instance, a concrete um, example of how the sectarian rational, uh, rationality of power intersects you know, with anti-LGBTQ popular attitudes, preventing the queer com community from contesting the order of things or from evolving into strategic actors in politics. So let's take the case of protests. For instance, to legitimize its existence, in Lebanon's protest culture, the queer community has faced the constant challenge of having to navigate strong anti-LGBTQ sentiments. During the 2019 revolutionary episode, queer activists were very conflicted as to whether they could you know, designate the Soro as an explicitly queer revolution and whether they can be really vocal about their demands because they were really afraid that inserting LGBTQ rights in the broader protest site 
could actually weaken the revolution and provide a platform for anti-LGBTQ voices to multiply. So indeed, as we show in the book, LGBTQ visibility in the 2019 protests and you know, also displaying pro-LGBTQ graffiti in uh, Beirut started soon enough, igniting a lot of hostilities. And some politicians and journalists claimed that the goal of some protesters was to phase out sectarianism so that they could pass laws supporting homosexuality. And so this had a lot of implications for LGBTQ mobilization in the Thaura, because in this co context, even protest groups who were supposedly pro-LGBTQ, they started showing you know, reluctance to giving a voice to queer activists because uh, for the mere fact that they were afraid that this would delegitimize their own events and sit-ins. Um, so uh, another example that I would like perhaps to allude to briefly, throughout the uprising, protesters also started using anti-gay slurs to defame uh, some politicians. So queer activists reacted heavily, they positioned themselves and they tried to change those slurs and to beautify them. Uh, at the same time, however, they were concerned as to whether focusing on these slurs could rather awaken anti-LGBTQ anti attitudes in the protest field and create rifts. And here I'd like to uh, allude to, you know, activist and writer Nadine Mawad's, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, expression when she says that LGBTQ activists in Lebanon all the time navigate a long list of compromises. So it's not easy to position queer mobilizations in such a sectarian minefield when politicians and mainstream circles equate the struggle to phase out sectarianism with decriminalizing homosexuality and legalizing same-sex marriage. Yeah. Um... And that actually leads directly to, I think, uh, another like big part of the book, which is you know this kind of detailed and very richly textured uh, description of the different modes of activism that uh, LGBTQ activists have um, have chosen, uh, from providing social services to having transgressive acts of visibility. John, do you want to talk a little bit about the different organizations that you studied, their different strategies, and the challenges that they face? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's a, it's a very complex field of activism, which is not necessarily homogenous or speaks with a collective voice. I think it's kind of fair to say that the LGBTQ activist movement in Lebanon um, has often been marked by, you know, cleavages and to some extent even kind of conflicts. And, you know, part of this is that the movement as it originally formed was an NGO sort of rights-based movement. It was mobilizing for kind of human rights, recognition of kind of sexuality. And, you know, for many kind of LGBTQ activists, that was seen as like a Western kind of form of activism, which was kind of too narrow and didn't take into account sort of local conditions. So, you know, there's been, richer kind of forms of activism which have come to the fore in recent years. Tamaras just mentioned, you know, that LGBTQ activists have very much been to the fore of the kind of revolutionary uh, forms of kind of protest action, um, taking to the kind of streets, um, creating kind of intersectional alliances with a range of groups, whether it's kind of class-based kind of groups, um, feminist kind of movements, you know, even with kind of refugees 
and so on. So there's always been this kind of rich kind of spectrum of kind of activism, which has not always kind of worked in a particularly kind of coherent kind of fashion. And that's, you know, one of the really kind of interesting kind of aspects about kind of a book is to kind of understand what sort of kind of principles activists have been using to kind of drive kind of activism. You know, some activist networks have said, look, we, we just don't want to be seen visible to be on the streets. We're not interested in kind of mobilizing for decriminalization. What we're actually kind of interested in, it's actually working behind the scenes, working with, um, you, you know, even kind of the security forces to make sure that they understand the needs of LGBT, you know, prisoners or to try to kind of stop torture. So there's always kind of, you know, different kind of modes of kind of activism. And yeah, maybe kind of Tamaras can also kind of add a bit here as well, because I know you've really been doing a lot of research on this recently. Absolutely. So as, as you said, Mark, our book dedicates major parts, I mean, to the queer community's ability to organize and mobilize and the various dilemmas it faces and it's, it's in its mode of organizing. Uh, uh, so very briefly, what are the tactical repertoires that queer activists use to mobilize? This is one of my favorite sentences in the book because one of the activists, you know, tells us when we ask, uh, when we ask her about uh, queer mobilizations and then she says, we have always been there. There is no present, there's no past, and there's no future. So to understand queer activism in Lebanon, we contend that it's important to account for this multi-layered field of informal alliances that John has just mentioned. And this dates back to years of coalition building and networks. So during the 2019 Thora, a lot of journalists and reporters talked about the sudden upsurge in queer activism in Lebanon, yet this is not what our field research uh, shows. In fact, as many of our interviewees tell us, we need to account for this precursory wave of activism and uh, you know, the informality of the struggle, as well as the various alliances that activists have built throughout the years with anti-racist, migrant, and feminist coalitions are really crucial. Um, so the issue, for instance, of refugee displacement from Syria has brought coalitions rallying for refugees, LGBTQ, and gender rights together. Activists, you know, started uh, connecting with uh, uh, also with activists from Iraq, Palestine, Syria, and they started advocating at the same time for abolishing the kafala system, Article 534, and ensuring equal nationality and citizenship rights uh, for women. Perhaps you may have noticed, Mark, but in the book, we kind of tried to come up with what we call a typology of queer mm -hmm. activism in post-war Lebanon, showing actually that queer initiatives cannot be understood through a monolithic lens. So we call this a continuum of activisms. Some activists really seek legal visibility and carry out advocacy work. They advocate, you know, very blatantly for decriminalizing homosexuality. Others are interested in providing services to remote uh, to people living in remote areas in Lebanon, in the North and in the South. Uh, also, there are everyday modes of activism, such as organizing storytelling nights or simply wrestling on a daily basis, you know, with bureaucracies and administrations. In addition, what we try to capture in the book is the importance of underground activism. 
Underground activism is extremely important according to the activist voices. Drawing on art, theater, literature as forms of everyday uninstitutionalized and subaltern politics is really at the heart of the contentious performances that some initiatives have adopted. The last point I wanna make is that these types of activism you know, are not independent from each other. They fluctuate and they intersect and they draw upon each other. So the same organization, you know, or community may choose to integrate several forms of activism in its menu of action, or may choose one form of activism rather than the other in accordance with the political structure of opportunities or the political uh, uh, context. Uh, for instance, during the 2019 uh, uh, Thora, uh, some organizations, for instance, at times, you know, encourage roadblocks. Uh, they, 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 they went, you know, some of their tweets were about, you know, for instance, uh, legal visibility. At other times, however, they they went back to the marginal and peripheral spheres and they started organizing storytelling nights. So it's important to look at this continuum of activism and, uh, and to see how it waxes and wanes, but also how it transforms and changes in accordance with political context and opportunity structures. Well, maybe one last question then is that I think this range of uh, types of mobilization is quite familiar um, across, you know, cross nationally and comparatively. Um, on the one hand, you talk about, you know, providing basic health services and, and food to completely marginal uh, communities. And on the other side, these kind of more elite uh, art performances and critical interventions in the public sphere. And again, I think that's, that's familiar to LGBTQ activism across the world. But you also note that there's a real tension between um, how Western activists talk about this and um, how Lebanese uh, activists experience it. And maybe for the last question, you could talk a little bit about those tensions that you see between like the Western approach and the local approach. John? Yeah, so um, if I could talk about the Western approach very broadly, I think it kind of stems from what we call Stonewall activism, which emerged in places like New York and San Francisco in the 1960s and the 1970s. And Stonewall activism is based on this idea of the politics of visibility, you know, coming out, um, declaring your kind of sexual identity, taking to the streets and being as visible as possible. And, you know, it's worked for Western activism, you know, on the one hand, coming out, being visible, declaring your sexual identity has been a great way to kind of recruit people to the movement, to encourage other people to come out who've been closeted and so on. And then on the other hand, you know, being visible, whether it's through kind of public performances such as Pride or having positive LGBTQ characters on TV and film has been a way of, you know, um, you know, kind of making broader kind of audiences aware and appreciative of kind of sexual diversity. So that kind of, you know, strategy has kind of worked kind of well, well in the Western kind of context. But I think activists in Lebanon would question the applicability of that type of activism in the Lebanese context and in other places in the global South. You know, on the one hand, what does coming out really mean, you know, the idea that we have a sexual identity, which is either kind of homosexual, kind of heterosexual, is very much a kind of Western invention, as you know, Foucault kind of points out, um, you know, in his work, that it was, you know, 
basically constructed in the 19th century by this kind of amalgam of kind of, you know, science, uh, you know, governmentality and all of these kind of types of things. So this kind of idea of kind of sexual identity as reified, so kind of straight or homo, um, it doesn't necessarily kind of resonate with how sexuality is understood in other contexts in the global South, which, you know, have very kind of different ways of kind of understanding kind of sexuality. Secondly, I think, you know, this idea of being visible coming out is potentially very dangerous, you know, taking to the streets, um, protesting, having pride parades. What it does is potentially invite the state to react in very authoritarian and violent ways against activist communities. And we've seen this in Lebanon, you know, the more that kind of activists um, come to the fore and become visible, we see this immediate backlash by state and security forces. And it kind of works for the kind of state and, you know, for the security forces to kind of do this because what we start saying is, well, look, it's Western sexual imperialism, you know, Western governments are trying to bring down the Lebanese government through kind of sexual politics or whatever. You know, it's a way for kind of authoritarian kind of regimes to, you know, kind of cement their own sort of rule by, you know, being seen to be violently kind of reacting against LGBTQ populations. So I think kind of Lebanese activists have kind of recognized that they need to kind of craft their activisms to kind of resonate with more kind of localized understandings of kind of sexuality. And then, you know, of course, you know, dealing with this problem of being visible on the streets with this politics of backlash. So I'm sure kind of Tamaras can, you know, add in more about the kind of um, kind of local kind of dynamics. Yeah, why don't we give the last word to, to you, Tammy? Thank you. So as John said, I guess that forms of activism um, in the LGBTQ community in Lebanon cannot be grasped through the lens of visibility versus invisibility or through the binary of the closet versus coming out. So here again, I would like to draw on the strong words that one of the activists told us. So we work underground. We cannot carve a space of public visibility if the people we work with are in the dark. So these words are immensely powerful because also they tell us that underground queer activism you know, is a powerful way to deconstruct the logic of the sectarian state and to show that building alternative modes of gendered labor, alternative economies, uh, and alternative futures for people is possible. So it's not only about legal advocacy, it's not only about political uh, advocacy. So uh, in this regard, uh, you know, um, alternative forms of activism are very important to re-envisioning you know, sectarianism, but also resisting and contesting it in Lebanon. And ambiguous visibility for many LGBTQ initiatives services, uh, serves, sorry, many functions and has many creative objectives. One last point um, that, we, uh, that we found very interesting uh, throughout our field research, many of the activists we interviewed were very cautious about adopting Western concepts of LGBTQ advocacy or activism, as John said. So some were particularly concerned about the extent to which Western-led donors' agendas are aligned with local struggles. 
So because according to these, you know, skeptical voices, uh, uh, people sometimes are subject to one script of activism, like they have to do advocacy, they have to lobby, they have to do some legal activism, but this doesn't really capture, you know, the, the, the realities that people struggle with on a daily basis. So sometimes these initiatives prefer, for instance, to, you know, have to, to have some funds in order to engage with language you know, to produce a glossary or, uh, uh, or to engage in artistic projects, literature, rather than just legal activism. Uh, one thing that I also found very interesting is that local Lebanese activists question the flurry of international initiatives that are set to give the queer community the so-called visibility in international spheres. So as you know, queer activists in Lebanon are regularly invited to contribute to the SDGs or to the localization of some international agendas such as the women, peace and security agenda. Yet here they feel that, uh, you know, following donor scripts and schemes of funding or their KPIs turns them into mere service providers or passive recipients of aid. And this is something that they would really like to challenge. And this also leads to enjoyization and makes them dependent on short-term aid. And this also leads further to the commodification of their activism in the context of neoliberal capitalist funding agendas. So their concern here, I think, and something that I would like uh, to voice or to, to express here is that how can their local activism be truly resilient and independent from Western or donors agendas? Well, it's really interesting. Uh, John Tamaris, thank you so much for taking the time to talk about your fascinating new book. Um, and uh, thanks for joining our program. Thank you so much for hosting us. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and on this week's article segment, we're joined by Reva Dingra, PhD candidate at Harvard University and author of the new article, Coordination in Practice or Performance, The Political Economy of Refugee Aid Coordination in Jordan, just published in the Journal of Refugee Studies. Reva, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Mark. So tell us about this article. This article starts from the uh, puzzle that there's been a proliferation of aid organizations working within global humanitarian responses. We've seen the number of international actors shoot up over the past few decades and uh, coordination and coordinating the different activities of various actors in humanitarian responses has become increasingly important to make sure that uh, refugees and vulnerable host communities get the, the aid that uh, is so necessary uh, during these moments of crisis. Um, and the, the puzzle that this article starts from is why despite the development of coordination structures that are aimed at coordinating and uh, helping maximize the efficient, efficiency of these aid operations, why despite these uh, coordination structures do humanitarian responses to refugee presences still fail to reach uh, refugees and vulnerable host community members effectively and efficiently. And I look at the, at the Syrian refugee response to uh, really understand um, the different dynamics of uh, interact, in international actor coordination behavior um, during these responses. And I argue that uh, these, these structures which are aimed at solving this coordination problem can actually uh, enable actors to coordinate in performance rather than coordinating in practice to, to perform the appearance of coordination 
um, and uh, not actually coordinate in uh, in practice. And I I test my theory by looking at the uh, different take up of uh, technological tools aimed at improving coordination. Um, first, looking at uh, the Refugee Assistance and Information System, which aims to uh, track refugee aid, and then uh, spatial tracking of mapping programs and aid uh, locations. And I argue that while aid organizations have been really great about monitoring refugee aid access, they've been uh, let's say less great at monitoring themselves. So so you, you look at this in the case of Jordan where there's dozens or hundreds of international NGOs that have kind of taken up shop to try and uh, you know work with the Syrian refugee crisis. Tell us a little bit about the case before we kind of get into the puzzle. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so Jordan is, um, it's, it's long been a host to refugees. You've had the Palestinian refugees, uh, Iraqi refugees, and now Syrian refugees since uh, mainly since 2012. And what we saw uh, after 2012 was a sort of surge of international actors to Jordan um, and the uh, the multiplication of, of international actors working in that space. So yeah, you do have a ton of international actors working in the space. And at the same time, the government is, uh, has, you know, uh, relied on international aid as part of its uh, as part of its economy and part of its governance structure aid has formed uh, part of the backbone of the of the monarchy and um, it's been described as a semi rentier uh, state where aid has been an important tool of shoring up uh, the country's governing system. So within this context, monitoring of aid and, and effective coordination becomes increasingly important. And um, and it's that context. It's also a, a middle-income state. So mm -hmm. it's not, you know, what we would think of as an extremely poor country where aid actors are operating in without any state capacity. So I think that's uh, really what makes it so interesting and um, and unfortunate that uh, aid coordination has not been as effective as it could have been. Now you distinguish between a vertical and horizontal coordination. So they all technically fall under uh, the UNHCR uh, mandate, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so actually it falls under a couple of different mandates. So I distinguish between vertical uh, coordination and I um, so I backing up I define coordination as a process of managing parallel actions by different stakeholders involved in the humanitarian response and I distinguish between vertical coordination which is uh, either between um, an an aid let's let's say an implementing organization an aid actor and a donor so that can be through reports it can be through um, reporting needs assessments um, and and coordinating uh, those actions so the donor knows what this this organization is doing versus the other organizations that it funds, for example. Um, it can also be horizontal between the different actors of uh, an aid response, and that component is is typically under uh, UNHCR in in refugee responses. Um, UNHCR has a mandate of of coordinating refugee responses. It can also be jointly shared with the government, uh, which it is in, in the Jordan case, but 
What I really focus on is the is a, a working group or a cluster system, which is run by UNHCR. And it's this area that forms uh, the backbone of my research, theorizing and uh, studying the coordination behavior of international actors within this horizontal framework. So it would seem like on the face of it that the efficiency of aid provision would be the motivating force, but you find that it's a lot more complicated than that. Yeah, so I look at a couple different factors, um, and I do think that in most cases, uh, aid organizations and international actors have a really strong incentive to coordinate. Um, I do think, and I, I discuss the literature that shows that these aid organizations are driven by altruistic imperatives, that there's really a strong desire to help and ensure that scarce aid is reaching populations effectively. Um, but at the same time, and, and I think this has been a more prominent uh, strain of the literature within uh, studying the behaviors of uh, international non-governmental organizations and refugee responses is we also have to think about material incentives and um, the sort of survival imperative. So uh, these actors, in addition to, you know, wanting to improve coordination effectively, also, you know, want to ensure that their organizations survive, want to ensure that their staff gets paid. And when you have all these different actors and an increasing number of actors operating in a space, that, that becomes very difficult to sustain all these different parallel organizations. So what I look at is how uh, these actors balance these different incentives. And I argue that where, uh, you know, monitoring and monitoring is low and the risk of material elimination of, of these employment opportunities and funding opportunities is high, you'll really see act, uh, international organizations and NGOs using these coordination structures as uh, as basically a signal to avoid coordinating in practice. So you, you and you describe this environment where you have these uh, you know constant fundraising and mm -hmm. short time horizons. It seems like it's designed almost to to keep them in that condition. Yeah, and I think uh, that's been a really serious concern within within especially the policy research on. Um, on improving uh, funding for humanitarian responses and improving our funding structure. We've seen it in COVID where, you know, you have the surge of actors to uh, spaces with funding that are, you know, designed to help people and are designed to, to sort of do good, but we're not, we're not doing that efficiently. And I mm -hmm. think uh, what I really point out in, in the framework is the existing literature on how these short funding cycles and uh, and competitive environments really put international actors uh, operating in spaces, NGOs uh, in particular, in in a space of extreme competition. That's bad for for the organizations. It's bad for refugees, and it's bad for the host community. So, what does coordination in performance mean? Like, give us an example of what does that look like? Yeah. So. Um, what I the, the theoretical framework that I, I use is drawn from uh, from political economy and game theory, and uh, it's the principal agent framework where you have a principal um, owner or a government and an agent, the international actor um, or NGO, and the the principal agent problem is characterized by divergent informa uh, interests and uh, asymmetrical information. So the actor on the ground. Uh, has more 
information than uh, the, than the principal or the, the donor in this case. And in, in many cases, that international organization is also subcontracting to a local organization. So those local actors have even more information. And so these coordination tools were designed by, by uh, international actors and donors to solve this principal agent problem. But what I argue is that some actors and in, in these situations of extreme competition and, uh, and uh, low monitoring in practice of these structures, simple participation in, in the structure can serve as, as a, a signal that basically gets the donor off an actor's back. Um, so, and that's what I call uh, coordination performance where you know, you can be satisfied by simple participation in the framework. And what that looks like in practice is sort of a reliance on uh, on in-person interaction heavy uh, coordination tools such as meetings, uh, you know, a limited take up of database solutions that are aimed at, you know, providing accountability and incomplete information inputting. It's, it's a whole mm -hmm. host of behaviors that you know, from the outside, it looks like uh, it looks like actors are coordinating. But as one of my interviewees put it, um, it's a lot of communication, a lot of communication, but not a lot of actual coordination. And what I, you know, distinguished with coordination in performance and and what actual, you know, coordination in uh, sorry coordination in practice mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to coordination in performance is, you know, everyone regularly attending these meetings. Um, and using data-based solutions, trying to use these tools that were designed to help, really uh, using these these collective solutions uh, in a in a good faith and in-depth way that actually helps um, improve mm -hmm. operations on the ground. But the last thing these organizations want is for the donor to figure out that they could just pay one of them to do it instead of five of them. Yeah, and I think I think that's I think that's a big concern. Um, and you know, it's not it's not that the donors are not blameless in this in this framework. I think there's a serious interest. Um, like the main factor, one of the main factors that I discuss is is the level of monitoring by donor organizations. And in some cases, you know, donor organizations don't want to know <laughs> that they could you know, fund one actor instead of five actors that, you know, if you have five different actors, for example, I, I discuss um, mental health and psychosocial support programming um, or sort of really, uh, you know, high visibility, high beneficiary uh, areas where you can say, you know, we helped X number of individuals and, um, without really interrogating whether or not that's achieving the the needs and objectives mm -hmm. of that sector. But yeah, these, these organizations um, from a purely incentive based framework don't have um, don't have the incentive to, to inform the donor about this. And the donor often doesn't have the incentive to, to know about this. So you, you did this uh, research in the context of Jordan. A few minutes ago, you mentioned uh, the COVID response. I guess last question would be, you know, what are the broad implications of this in terms of humanitarian relief and, and you know, trying to actually do the good things which the organizations want to do? But what's the major takeaway of the article for if we wanted to, uh, you know, solve these problems? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I, and I, I think one of the the goals um, when I was doing this project and coming up with with a theory was to really take a step back and 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 think about this in uh, in a framework where we could lay out clear incentives for the actors. Obviously, it's much more complicated in real life, and then um, have sort of solutions to address uh, the the behavior that those incentives give rise to. So. I think one of the big takeaways for this is, first of all, this is one case, um, and I do discuss in the in the conclusion that there's variation that's implied by, you know, if you were in a different uh, mm -hmm. system of government with um, more invested monitoring and uh, engagement with the the practice of aid coordination, or if you were in a sector with or in a country with fewer actors, um, that what we see might be different. But I think. Uh, what this implies is uh, a really a need to focus on uh, understanding the material incentives that drive aid organizations to uh, coordinate in performance rather than coordinate in practice and take up solutions that respond to those direct incentives. And, um, and in the meantime, try to adopt uh, more effective uh, coordination tools. So what I, I uh, discuss is... Um, you know, uh, more uh, better monitoring of these structures, um, trying to reform the the fundraising system. Uh, the Center for Global Development uh, had a report out that looked at the role of area-based coordination. So focusing uh, coordination on uh, subnational uh, geographic areas to better improve uh, aid access and prevent overlap. So there, are, I think there are a lot of different solutions and that or implications uh, that this article and other research on humanitarian coordination has. And I think the, the main thing is putting them into practice. Well, great. Thank you so much. We've been speaking with uh, Ray Badinger of Harvard University. Uh, uh, thanks for joining us. Thank you. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and on this week's topical segment, we're joined by Donna of Kurd, a political scientist at University of Richmond. Uh, Donna, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So um, we talked uh, on this program about about a year ago about the events that were happening in East Jerusalem, the uh, the battles over the confiscation by settlers of homes in East Jerusalem, um, and uh, you know what's happened in the time since then that you've been observing. So um, there have been some um, kind of stays on some of the um, expulsions, the confiscations of of particular homes and properties, um, but. Um, I think as people's attention has waned, you know, the, the Israeli government has moved to um, begin some key expulsions. So there was the Salhiya family very recently this morning, the Salem family, so their neighbors also received their uh, notice that they will have to, um, they will have to, you know, vacate the premises by March, I think. Um, so there is kind of a sustained, you know, a continuation of the, land confiscation and property confiscation policy um, in Sheikh Jarrah in particular, but this is playing out in other parts of Palestine as well. Now, there's been kind of ongoing mobilization against this, but uh, from what you're saying, it sounds like it's not getting as much traction as before. I think that's fair to say. Um, Palestinian civil society organizations that were involved in the first kind of round of, of mobilizing around Sheikh, Sheikh Jarrah are still involved, um, and they have achieved some pretty significant um 
like coordination successes, let's say. So the same group of people are coordinating now around um, the evictions that are happening within Israel in the Naqab, the, the Negev, uh, the Bedouin communities there. So they're, you know, they're building on some of their skills, but definitely I would say like, it's not, you know, the, the demolitions that are happening in Sheikh Jarrah and, and, and the expulsions that are happening there are not um, garnering the same level of like community involvement and like mobilization as as they were in May. Definitely, I think that's the key. Now, now the civil society has taken the lead in this mobilization. Um, where has the Palestinian Authority been in all of this? Obviously not in East Jerusalem, but more broadly, how have they related to the social mobilization? Yeah, I mean, basically absent. Um, they've been even in some of the evictions and, and, the, and the, the expulsions and, and confiscations that are happening in the South Hebron Hills, they have not been, which is, you know, West Bank proper, <laughs> they're, they're not, they've not been involved in um, supporting the families or, or, you know, in any way kind of advocating on their behalf. Um, it seems like they've been completely, completely absent and completely kind of sidelined with their own internal issues. There have been some discussions about moving towards elections. Does that have any uh, resonance with what's happening on the ground? Uh, yeah, I, nobody, nobody, none of the activists that I know or follow or talk to, like, are taking that seriously, especially given, you know, the, the experience of last, last year where, um, yeah, they went nowhere. So there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of frustration. There's a lot of, uh, disillusionment with the existing institutions. That's, leading to some kind of, you know, some kind of organization that's quite empowering and also some uh, more alarming, um, mm -hmm. you know, conclusions among some of them. Well, let's take a step back. You've been doing research with, uh, with and on Palestinian activists uh, for, for a long time. And you know, can you tell us a little bit about your observations about the trajectory of Palestinian organization, this new generation of activists, and kind of how they're thinking about the nature of uh, their kind of political struggle right now? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question because it like keeps me up at night. Um, so, so there's, as you said, there's kind of a younger generation of activists. There's um, organizations that ha exist kind of in a different way that they either like, you know, um, mostly get kind of independent uh, donations, like individual donations or, or new organizations that have emerged, like the Dignity, Dignity and Hope Fund, for example, that are, you know, some activists are organizing around. Um, all of that is really positive and like it's invigorated um, certain segments of Palestinian society and obviously like achieved some wins, um, even, even just at the level of discourse and at the level of like awareness, like they've obviously achieved like uh, great victories and um, the, some of the events of the unity unity intifada in May and June showed that like that is also that can also be quite alarming to the Israeli state, and that that is you know a, a success um, for these kinds of organizers. Um, the way that they perceive their political struggle is that obviously they don't they don't um, accept the premise of the two state solution. They don't think it's viable, but they also don't accept the premise of it. But even now, I would say that some strong elements of these kind of organizing, like of some of these movements, also reject the notion of binationalism. Um, 
And so there are some tensions, I think, within the Palestine solidarity uh, organizations, both on the ground and in the diaspora, like outside Israel-Palestine, because some people are advocating around this notion of apartheid and a one-state solution and binationalism. And, you know, as I said, a, a, a not insignificant number of people on the ground don't accept that as a premise or accept that as a starting point. There's a lot of discussion about decolonization as kind of the framework and as the objective, but that is not fully, I, I, in, my, in my view, it's not fully fleshed out what decolonization would entail. And so that lack of clarity around kind of long-term objectives um, means that, as one of them said to me recently, like we're engaging in tactics, not long-term strategy. So like short-term, medium-term, which is understandable, you know, they're facing a lot of pressures. They want to make sure that this family doesn't, you know, get kicked out of their homes or they want to advocate on behalf of certain prisoners, whatever. Like, obviously, they have more pressing concerns than to think about, like, a long-term political trajectory. But those are kind of unanswered questions. Um, and I don't think that there is any unity on what that looks like in the future. Um, and so that's causing um, that's causing fragmentation within um, some of these or some of these between these organizations, but also um like what's the word they're losing the opportunity to mobilize people more effectively mm -hmm. essentially one of the things which was really striking last summer was the way that you saw mobilization going kind of going forward on both sides of the green line um and kind of the increased engagement between the palestinian activists and you know you know palestinians who are israeli citizens um how, how has that continued over the last uh, period or is that kind of uh, uh faded no, that has continued. Actually, that like that would I would say is is uh, one of the main like uh, victories and kind of implications of the unity in Zafada was the fact that this kind of across the green line coordination has intensified, has you know increased in coordination, um, and so there's activists from across the green line that are engaging both in Sheikh Jarrah, as I said, and issues of like Palestinian citizens of Israel in prison issues around the Naqab, the Negev, um, you know, Bedouin communities. So th they're, they are coordinating. And that is um, something that they were able to kind of build on and take away from the Unity Intifada in a, in a, in a sustained way. Um, like you said, we haven't seen as much in the past. But, so in the, in, the, in the broader context, if you zoom out, this is happening in the backdrop of the so-called Abraham Accords, the normalization between the UAE and Israel, um, you know, just, uh, you know, the Israeli president's visit uh, to Abu Dhabi um, and, you know, this sense that this Israeli government is not interested in engaging um, on these issues and nor does anybody else, the United States or anyone else. So how do you read this in terms of the kind of the energy you see on the ground versus this kind of moving on at kind of the level of international diplomacy? I mean, I think that speaks like that obviously plays a role in the dynamics that I just described in terms of like not having a, a long term political vision, um, because, as you said, like there's a um, part of it. Part of it is like, you know, internally, people are not making up their minds about what they want, but also they're reacting quite rationally to like an international and regional dynamic that is is not interested in what they think anyway. So they don't know, like. Maybe there's no use in in thinking of these kinds of long-term political solutions. Where are you going to channel that? Um, so 
that speaks, I think, to, to, to some of the dynamics we see on the ground. But one thing that has kind of emerged as, I don't know, maybe a silver lining we can say, is um, there has been some uh, like connections being made between Palestinian activists in historic Palestine and you know um, activists in the Gulf, for example, activists in Qatar or Bahrain or you know less less obviously in the Emirates and Saudi Arabia, but still some some degree of like connections being made there um, because in some people's minds like these governments will never will never change policy or like they're it's 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 meaningless to try to engage at the governmental level so they're attempting these kind of like uh people to people connections um so we're seeing a little bit more of that i'd say one area where there seems to have been pretty significant change over the last year or so has been kind of the increasing engagement by kind of international human rights organizations, um, very, you know, kind of not not Palestinians, but kind of the, the Palestine adjacent, um, you know, global civil society, Human Rights Watch, Amnesty, et cetera, you know, increasingly talking about things like the one state solution, the apartheid analogy and that sort of thing. How engaged do you see that international discourse being with what the Palestinian activists themselves are talking about and trying to do? So I would say there's an element of people on the ground, maybe some of uh, some of the people that are like involved in certain like human rights NGOs and things like that, kind of more formalized, let's say, uh, civil society organizations. Th- those people are you know, um, aligning with some of these changes. They're, they work with B'Tselem, they work with the Human Rights Watch. They've, they've uh, you know, there's the, the Amnesty International, like the report that was, that's, that was just leaked, I think, today about how they're going to be identifying Israel as a, an apartheid state. Um, pe- those kinds of activists are welcoming those changes. They're welcoming uh, that, that discussion. There's another, again, not insignificant, segment of activists who are rejecting all of this um they it's too little too late we don't we don't care what the human rights organizations think that still the premise is wrong the premise a binational premise um entails that you accept that you know there will be some settler claims to the land like there is that discussion and so we saw for example like Omar Shek, uh, who continues to work for Human Rights Watch, but is, was deported from Israel. Um, when, uh, you know, he was, I think, pretty instrumental in, in making sure that Human Rights Watch, the report, like, you know, went into such depth to, like, detail uh, Israel as an apartheid state. He faced attack from certain elements of um, kind of the Palestine organizing crowd for engaging with Palestinian Knesset members or this, you know, framing the conversation around apartheid or framing the conversation around the one state for some elements that doesn't go far enough um and that's as i said it's uh, it's creating tensions so right now you see things as very much uh, still in flux not really consolidated around a specific political engagement yeah i would say so and i and that's why that's why they're not able to translate all of the excitement and all of the mobilization and and um empathy and like the, the you know, people all around the world were quite mobilized around the Sheikh Sharrah situation in May. And there were some protests when the Sarhiya family like uh, was facing uh, um, expulsion. 
but they were very minimal. Like not like not like last year, not like last not year. Not at all. Not at all. Like so, there wasn't even enough of a crowd in some places to take a nice picture. You know what I mean? Like so, it's like how did how do you mm-hmm. how do you squander that? <laughs> um, it's clear it's because they're they're not able to work together as effectively, but also to like articulate like why should people continue to to be engaging with them? I guess one last question then is about Gaza, which is so often, you know, treated as like a separate issue. Um, and it is obviously different dynamics in many ways. But how do you see the, the ongoing Gaza uh, blockade and violence and everything else relating to these struggles in Jerusalem and, and in the West Bank? Um, so there is like a concerted effort by certain like certain organizations and Palestinian activists to connect with people in Gaza, to include them and, and, and to frame the conversation as a unified struggle and that Gaza is one part moving. So, so I, you know, I can see some changes maybe in that direction that like people from Gaza will be more incorporated mm-hmm. in initiatives like and like these kinds of things. But um, the biggest way that I see Gaza moving forward is like as the blockade continues, um, and Hamas resists the blockade in various ways. Um, that will motivate people in other parts of like Palestine, Israel. Um, but it also sets up a situation where Hamas is kind of the moral authority on, um, yeah, on like where the movement moves forward. Um, because when Absolutely. when Gaza is being attacked, nobody's going to say like we're against Hamas. Nobody's going to say we're, we're with resistance, but not this way or whatever, you know, um, or not at this time or not, not with these groups of people. So uh, it, it's, uh, it's creating a situation where Hamas is being elevated, I think, as like kind of the resistance is the sole, like Hamas is the resistance and then the resistance as the sole um, kind of legitimate representative of what Palestinians want. Every, you know, everybody, ha- Everybody, I think, agrees with the right of Palestinians to resist on the ground, but um, I don't know that everybody agrees that Hamas is that that sole legitimate representative, and and it's creating a situation where that's the only that's the only thing that's happening now is that they have become they've they've started to play this role. Seems like everything, and, and Gaza really you know epitomizes this, but everything just seems so kind of stagnant and kind of trapped in these ongoing cycles. And I think the thing about last summer was that it seemed like there might be some movement into something new, but uh, sounds like you don't think we're anywhere close to there yet, though. Um, you know, it's an iterative, iterative process. Like there is something new um, and they have been able to push the margins, both on the ground and internationally. This kind of cross across the Green Line coordination is something new. It's something to be capitalized, capitalized on and built on. Um, but like there are huge impediments to their ability to succeed like they're facing a very powerful state apparatus right they're facing an a regional dynamic and a regional context that doesn't matter doesn't care about them so it's like if you can resist up to a certain point on the ground um but there's like right. you have to start to think about how to remove some of the structural impediments to take it further um and i I'm not like criticizing, like saying they're not doing enough, um, of course, of course. but, but it, that has not been reached yet. Like, yeah. Well, Donna, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us about this. 